Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 449, air date April 12th, 2019. Hello and welcome to P Guru's channel. I'm your host, Sri Ayer. Today we meet Dr. Shiva Ayadurai, um, the inventor of email. And for those of you who, might, who may have watched the previous videos, you would have known Dr. Ayadurai as having uh, been born in India, but he grew up in the United States. At a very early age, uh, he invented email working in uh, a doctor's office. And uh, you know he has not looked back since then. He's got four degrees from MIT. Um, he runs now a company called Cytosol. Uh, what I would like to talk to Dr. Ayadurai today is in the present context of India going to elections. He has had a, a number, he spent a number of years uh, working in India, and I want to pick his perspective for who he thinks is the best person suited to lead India for uh, 2019 and beyond. Dr. Ayadurai, welcome to P Guru's channel. Thank you, Sri. Thanks for having me. So, Dr. Ayadre, I'd like you to take us back to the time when you decided to go to India. I think you got a Fulbright scholarship. I could be wrong about it. I know you got a scholarship. Yeah, it was, it was a Fulbright fellowship in 2007, eight, and I went back to India. I had just finished my PhD three, and I obviously I had a deep affection for my motherland. And I want, I, I've always had a deep interest in traditional systems of Indian medicine. Um, I, I think as I've shared before, I, as you mentioned, I grew up in India in Bombay as a kid, and I, but I also grew up in a small village in Tamil Nadu in deep south India. And my grandmother was a, a farmer by day, you know, 15, 16 hours in the fields, but on weekends she practiced a Siddha, which is the southern sort of variant, uh, or in some, you can have a discussion on this, uh, of what's uh, equivalent to a practice in Ayurveda. Right. No degrees, and, and she would actually um, use that system to help. She was a village essentially healer. Hmm. So I was fascinated how this woman could do this without any degrees. That, as, as you mentioned, led my journey. When my parents came here in 1970, you know, I started doing medical research um, at a young age in a, in a medical school. And that's when I wasn't in a doctor's office, actually what is now known as Rector's Medical School. And that's where I invented email. Okay. Went on to MIT, always with a deep interest in doing medicine straight. But I had an uh, unfortunate disappointment with the way Western medicine looked at the body. Mm -hmm. And in 2003 to 7 is when I came back to MIT after doing various companies. I'd go in and out of MIT after other degrees. And I did my PhD in a field called biological engineering uh, in 2007. And I decided to take time off now that I had you know, all sort of the skills and credibility. You know, no one could say I'm sort of some guy who doesn't have the the training to do this, why not go back to India now that I understand Western medicine, understand the Western system of systems biology, why not see if I could understand and decipher what Indian medicine was about from a Western context. And so that was in 2007 and eight, I went back to India and, uh, and I was able to make a significant breakthrough as a part of my Fulbright work, where I actually recognized that the Indian system of medicine was not in fact a system of medicine. And in many ways, it's been wrongly looked at, and even today, that it's actually a, uh, a systems theory, systems theoretical approach 
to understanding not only the body, but any system in the universe. So when the Indian rishis and yogis were looking at the body, they saw it as a complex system. And the language that they built for that, which integrated terms from yoga and terms from Siddha and Ayurveda, which were for some reason disintegrated over thousands of years, um, I essentially was able to reconnect them and show that that terminology matched one-to-one -one with Western control systems theory. And uh, I wrote a paper on that in an engineering journal when I got back. But, and then that's a whole other story. We have a, 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 an educational institute called Systems Health that came out of my work there, which we retrain MDs and we retrain uh, yoga people in the U.S. on how to understand this integration of Eastern and Western medicine. But I think what you're referring to, when I was in India and I was getting ready to leave in 2009, I uh, was uh, literally the night before I was supposed to come back um, to Boston, um, the director general of CSIR, some people may know CSIR in India, so I don't know, maybe I'll explain, but CSIR. Council of Scientific and Industrial Research? Yeah, Council of Scientific and Industrial Research. And I, and I was traveling around different labs in India as a part of my research, and I came across one of the labs, which was uh, used to be headed by the director general. And people said, hey, the director general uh, wants to meet with you. When I went in, into his office, he had my entire dossier of everything that I had done. Mm. And he said, why are you leaving for the United States? Why don't you stay in India? Um, and there's a new program called Outstanding Scientists, Technologists of Indian Origin, STIO. And he goes, I would highly like I would recommend you to the prime minister's office that you be the first STIO mm. and I didn't know a lot about the Indian bureaucracy but the position would be what was called an additional secretary in the Indian government which I understand is a very high level position um, I would be immediately coming in at what's known as scientist level H in, in the Indian CSIR system they've A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H and I don't, I don't think you become H until you're 50 or 60 or something that's right that's right and I was, you know, at that time, I think it was 42. And uh, so at that time, my father-in-law at that time, who, who also used to, used to be very esteemed member in the Indian bureaucracy, said he was actually amazed at this offer. And so I decided to take it. And the night before I decided to take it, the director general took a piece of paper and he said, look, here's my word. This is what you'll get. Separate from the compensation, I wanted the freedom to actually help support innovation. So if you look at CSIR, it was started in 1940s by Nehru. And the purpose of CSIR was to actually be a very practical organization for innovation across India. So be it, um, you, know, you know, leveraging India's um, leather industry, right, to create leather, or be it uh, leveraging India's um, supply of herbs to create better, you know, herbal products. Very, very practical. And it was never intended to be a basic sciences research organization just publishing papers. But between 1947 and by the time I was in India, 2007, 8, 9, that organization, there was a lot of criticism in the Indian media and among the public because they felt that CSIR had devolved into a useless organization which wasn't producing anything. And so there was a lot of pressure. Manmohan Singh was the prime minister at the time to somehow rehabilitate CSIR into something functional. CSIR at that time around 4,000 scientists, 37 labs all over India from all the way from Goa, you know, all the way up to near the Himalayas, you know, 
all these different labs, which are all focused on different things. So when I took on this job, the, the goal was among those labs must be innovations, which you could actually create into new companies. And could you create an ecosystem for innovation? So it was like an incubation lab. It was supposed to be. Well, CSIR was intended to, be all, to produce innovations. But how do you measure an innovation? An innovation is not just a patent or a publication, right? An innovation is an idea that actually becomes a product yes. or some service offering that you actually bring to the public. Right. Well, Advertising is an idea, right? It's different than invention, right? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so, so, but what you know, so when I looked at this, there were uh, thousands of patents that CSR had filed, thousands of publications, but maybe less than one or two percent of those patents were even legitimate. Most of them, you know, weren't even legitimate patents, defensible, or some of them were copied. It was quite atrocious when you actually looked at the repository. However, um, I put together a plan, three, which was really to incent the, I knew there were very smart people within that environment. Um, if you could incentivize them to think much more customer focused, right? Which was, you have to create something. The original goal of CSR to create something for the Indian masses. So the, the, I, within literally, uh, because, you know, for me, it was easy because all of my companies I've created were always based on, it doesn't matter what you think is good. You have to create something that you have to find a customer. Every company I created, I'd always go get a customer for some innovation I had. And then I'd work with that customer, no matter how much they liked me or not. Right. And then even if I failed, gather all that and then redo the product or service and then go after more customers. And then and only then did I ever write a business plan. Mm. The Harvard Business School bogus model is write some bogus business plan. Anyone who's done business plan knows that they're always off by a factor of 10 or 100. Right, right. But when you actually make something, you solve a problem, you learn from the customer, that's when you evolve something. So I put together a model which was based on flipping the model on its head, which is um, uh, I was appointed the CEO of CSIR Tech, and my job would be to spin out at least six innovations um, in a year. Mm. And per my agreement, there would be $10 million allocated, not to me for my personal needs, but to use that to identify innovations to incent those people. And the model went uh, something like this. I'd give you about 50 to 100K mm. if you could actually find a customer for your product, which means you had to find a real customer. So if you had a water purifier, find me a customer that's actually using it. Once you did that, I would give you another quarter of a million dollars if you could actually take it to the next phase of getting more customers. And what this meant for you, you needed to learn how to package a product, you needed to learn how to do the sales, the marketing, customer service. Then after that, you'd get a much larger amount, I forget what it was, like a million dollars, to actually now do the business plan you know, and take it to market. Okay. Mm -hmm. It was a very, uh, it was a model based on customer focused. So halfway into this three, what I noticed was something fascinating. The chief financial officer at CSIR one day pulled me and she goes, Shiva, you know, they're never going to let you do anything that you were just brought here to be uh, window dressing. Hmm. And my father-in-law at that time was telling me, Hey, don't do anything. Just go to work each day, go, come and go back, and one day you'll become appointed Minister of Science and Technology. You don't really need to do anything, mm. okay? Actual advice. Um, so what I realized was I, I didn't want to waste my time there. So the CFO uh, 
gave me advice. She goes, go directly and start meeting with people hmm. and, 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 and sell your concept because it's a brilliant idea to people directly. So I literally traveled to all those labs, a number of those labs, met probably close to 2,000. Imagine that. Half of those people I had a chance to interact with. And the people were elated. I used to uh, meet with innovators within the team of 4,000 scientists. People were doing amazing innovations. And the consistent theme I heard was the people within CSR, the story was very similar. It was like a, a, a pattern. They'd say, you know, I have this thing. My boss, my lab director is very jealous of me. Hmm. He wants me to just publish and do that. He doesn't even uh, want to support my invention. Uh, so I went to NIO, which is the National Institute of Oceanography in Goa once. These, a group of researchers had put together an amazing robot for zooplankton research, built it, all Indian made. Great work. The director of the lab doesn't even come to their major showing. Okay, it's quite extraordinary. Um, I think one of the members of the, uh, senior members of the Navy was there. And, and they pulled me aside and they said, look, the director of the lab is afraid that if I get any popularity, it will diminish him. Hmm. So, so this was the milieu, uh, you know, standing ovations when I'd shared this model. People were like, You're, we're so happy that you came. And then the reality was the director general uh, never wanted to even support any of this. He never released any of the funds. Not for me, again, for these people, right? We identified not six, I identified close to 12 amazing inventions, which would probably, if we had proceeded, could have a multi-billion dollar market value for, for CSIR. Interestingly enough, during those 70 years, Sri, the, the total net value that any of these patents brought into CSIR were about $2 million, which means about $20,000 a year. Quite mm -hmm. So they haven't really produced anything. Mm -hmm. so here, I'm doing this work, right, purely out of the love of wanting to give something back to my motherland. Um, we find amazing people within that. And you have Samir Brahmacharya at that time. He was a director general who was also under investigation for embezzling. Was he the one who gave you the offer letter? He's the one who gave me the offer letter. Okay. Okay. Um, so Brahmacharya gives me the offer letter. And um, so every day's meetings with Brahmacharya, hey, I found these let's deploy the funds, nothing, nothing, nothing. What's interesting is around the middle of my tenure, around June or July, we can go look at the date, half of the building at CSIR burns down. Wow. is under investigation for around embezzling $35 million. And when that building burned down, uh, a lot of the files got lost mysteriously. And in fact, I left around 6 p.m. and one of my coworkers called me and he said, did you get out of the building? I go, yeah, what's going on? He said, well, the building burned down. And three people died in that. The building uh, burns down. A half of the building burns down. And interestingly enough, um, three people died. One of them was a bookkeeper. Okay? Now, uh, I think there was one little press report on this. And Brahmacharya was being investigated from the lab that he used to direct, uh, funneling money to a separate private-public partnership headed by Chatterjee and Soros, George Soros, okay? Oh, wow. So uh, a lot of money, right? Mm. So I'm watching this. I'm watching the fact Brahmacharya doesn't want to bring me, you know, really commit to anything. And I realized that what Sheila had said was absolutely right, which was the CFO, which is that they just wanted an MIT guy there, right? So they could say, oh, we're doing stuff. 
And that's not who I am. So on October 19th, I remember this day well, uh, it was Diwali night. I write a- Which year was this? Which year was this? Uh, 2009. Nine, okay. I write a, a 47 page report because Brahmachari said, well, if you have problems, why don't you put it in writing what your problems are and give me a report. So anyway, I, that's what I did. I put a report together identifying the problems and then I also identified, I also gave solutions, very clear solutions, what I call the path forward. That report, it was a draft, because I believed I developed very good relationship with these scientists, I also uh, sent it to them as a draft, saying, please give me back your feedback. Within three hours of my sending out that report, my email was shut down. And you have to remember, they had given me a, a bungalow in Delhi, Marani Bog, right? Um, you know, you're treated like royalty to some extent. And uh, uh, I think two days after that, they said I would be evicted from my house. Okay. Now, what's interesting is um, my mother and father, my mother actually flew up to Delhi and she said, you fight. And here's my mother who was suffering from pulmonary fibrosis at the time. My in-laws who are very esteemed people in the Indian government, they just sort of fled away. It was very interesting to watch his behavior. <laughs> uh, and... Uh, and so here I am alone mm. in Delhi. I'm getting death threats. Uh, I'm afraid what's going to happen to me. And uh, Star News, again, this is up on the web, uh, calls me and they said, we'd like to, well, one of the things that happened was when that report got sent, it got also leaked to Hindustan Times, which did a front page report. I think scientists hired and fired. The reporter who did that report was originally going to do it, a real article, and then she was threatened by Brahmachari. Okay? Same time the New York Times contacted me. They wrote an article, and when they went to see Brahmachari, Brahmachari said, if you write this article, I'll make sure you're fired. To Heather Timmons, who, by the way, was the head of India, the entire India, India Bureau. And when I met with her, Heather said, you know, you know, this is very dangerous, Shiva. If you want, you can come stay at my home with my husband and I. She was actually concerned for my life, the level of thuggery that was. I remember Congress is in power. And during that time, um, uh, I'm trying to figure out what to do, right? Relative to my personal life, separate from my reputation. Yes, yes. And uh, um, I call, uh, one of my friends in the United States gave me Sam Petroda's number. Hmm. They said, oh, this guy is this great guy who, you know, who he's from, he lives in the U.S., he's like you, you know. And people would always say, oh, yeah, you, you should become like Sam Petroda, okay. He was like <laughs> this model Indian who would come back to supposedly be the savior of India. So I called Petroda up, I remember this distinctly, call him up on the phone, and he says, I, t I tell him everything that's going on. Now, you would think he would want to do something. And he said, okay, okay, I'll call you back. He never called me back, Sri. And I'll come, that was what, 2009. And that's why it's fascinating. Now, S Star News wanted to do a full expose on this. So um, they uh, invite me to, you know, they had all the camera and lights ready in an outside studio to shoot. As I'm about to do this, I get a call or the producer gets a call saying, if you do this, you'll be thrown in jail. So I call the US embassy and I say, should I come in? And the embassy is like, of course you should come in. You don't want to be stuck in an Indian jail. Because in India, they can make up anything, right? That is they can say you misuse the car for some reason, right? Because in the Indian bureaucracy, everyone keeps tabs on each other. They're wanting people to violate some rule so they could use it on other people. 
There's a famous saying there, show me the face and I'll show you the rule. I say, that's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's sort of what it's like. Get it on just about anything. Please continue. Right. right. So, so when I so here I'm standing with the studio guys ready to do my interview on Crime Time, and I hear what the embassy took, and and I had to make a decision: do I just leave, you know, or do I do this interview? And the only thing I could think about, Sri, was a commitment I had made when I was a 12-year-old kid when I came back to India briefly to my grandparents. Here were poor people who had nothing worked there, you know, worked every day. And I realized that if I didn't say anything, you know, here I'd made money, I had four degrees from MIT, I've accomplished, what does that, what does that make me as a person? So I did the interview, you know, I shared everything. I think it went viral all over India because it was primetime TV. And then the next day, my father-in-law was giving me insights and he said, you should probably leave. So I took a train, uh, it's like out of a movie all the way on a third class train for 32 hours straight, trying to figure out, people are giving me advice, you go to the border of Nepal, you cross, because they don't check passports there. And then I could go to Kathmandu, then I took a plane from there to Qatar, to London, and then I landed in Boston. The instant I landed, I think it was November 10th or 11th now, uh, 2019, there was an email from the editor of Nature India. Nature is obviously a very, very esteemed science magazine. And the editor had said, Dr. Ayaduri, we would really like uh, to do an interview with you mm. uh, or, or for you to write a commentary, which is considered a very prestigious thing in nature. Mm. Uh, but they said, you know, we've been watching CSIR for nearly 70 years. It hasn't produced anything. So I wrote a commentary which says innovation demands freedom. And I think the subtitle was why America innovates in India may never. They took away that subtitle, but I shared everything mm. that had gone on. And in fact, I said, I will do an open, transparent public inquiry. Mm. Let Brahmachari come, I'll come, I'll share everything. Mm. Meanwhile, Brahmachari was unleashing his minions, trying to attack me on the internet, saying I wanted more money, all mm. sorts of just pure lies. After that article get, gets printed in Nature India, the editor of Nature gets threatened, and she calls me. Mm. Said, Shiva, I have to pull down the article. I'm under threats because Nature is owned by a UK publication where the libel laws, that's what they at least used as the reason was much lower so she could be you know jailed or etc so the article gets removed so luckily we had a version of it that we put up um, if people go to a site called innovationdemandsfreedom.com you'll see the entire history there but my point is that that period was i mean i put i could have just stayed there Sri, kept my mouth shut and i i think 99 percent of people would have done that you know <laughs> maybe a little bit less maybe 90 percent yeah but that's not who I am because, I, because all I could think about were my grandparents and the promise I'd made to them. That it wasn't about me, that it was something. And, you know, you're, I think I got a lot of great emails from a lot of scientists uh, from that. But the, but the reason I brought up San Petrota was I remember, like, it was desperate, you know. Here I am without really any support system. And I reach out to him. Here's a guy who emigrated to the U.S. You would think he would have done something. And it was only, I think, uh, about a two, three weeks ago, I saw a tweet that uh, Prime Minister Modi put out because here was Petroda supporting Congress's position and diminishing uh, Modi's uh, decision on what he did with Pakistan. And I had no idea that Petroda was a supporter of Rahul Gandhi or Congress. Actually, I'll clue you in on one little thing. 
there is an embezzlement case that is doing proceeding through the courts. It's called the National Herald Newspaper. And in this, the Gandhis, Rahul Gandhi and Sonia Gandhi, allegedly stole the company. And this company had properties worth 5,000 crores. Guess who is also implicated in this case? The directors for that company, one of which is Sam Petroda. Wow. This guy is the inner, inner sanctum sanctorum of that family. And, and I think let's, let's, so that's going to play itself out in, in the courts because they are trying to put every trick to delay the, the inevitable, but they are going to go to jail because this is one of those few cases where you have the actual signature of Sonia Gandhi. So that's an interesting topic for a different day. Well, that, that, that's pretty wild because see, I did, so it was in many ways I was speaking to the devil when I called Petroda. I thought he was going to help me. Yes. Uh, and he never, and it's interesting because at one point I actually drove to Seven Racecourse Road, which is Manmohan Singh's place, right? Right. Um, and, I'm, I, and I went there because, you know, I, uh, I'm thinking this person would be an honorable man. And I'm waiting there to meet with him. And I remember sitting in the waiting room and I see a picture of Sonia Gandhi. Uh, what's the guy's name who was the uh, chief minister, maybe still is a Bombay? Because he was a minister Antule? of science. Uh, Abdul Rahman Antule? No, no, Prithviraj. Prithviraj Chaman. Prithviraj Chaman, right, right. Prithviraj Chaman, et cetera, you know? And I remember seeing this and I'm saying, wow, now I understood what was going on. Hmm. And, and then when I saw three weeks ago Petroda in with the Gandhis, everything came full circle. And that's what I hammered it on with my tweet, you know, um, that, you know, this guy's essentially a complete fake and he's in with one of the most corrupt families of India who's delayed Indian progress. And I, that's when all, everything came because if he was a true person, he would have called me back and tried to help a fellow, you know, emigrate, an immigrant who's, who's, who's had the same experience. He did nothing. He probably would have seen what like to see me dead or something. So <laughs> no, seriously. So, you know, it gets back to the earlier thing that we did street, you know, the, if people see the earlier podcast or the video that we did, in that example, I was, I think we were having a discussion about people who actually do things. Right. And then the people who fake things. Petroda is the latter. You know, writes books, takes a lot of time, I'm sure, combing his hair, you know, creating his little brown goatee. And I'm, I'm saying this not out of uh, attacking him, but this is all very manufactured. These people manufacture their brands, you know, and then his alliance with a complete dope and a cokehead, Rahul Gandhi. That's what he actually is. And the manufacturing of his brand. When you look at these people, substantively, they've done nothing. You know, if you really look at Petroda, and by the way, Kapil Sibyl, in fact, talked about the fact that nearly 150 of the media publications are owned by Congress, right? No one really wants to discuss this, but you have an organization which owns the media, uh, blatantly owns them, and then the promotion has been made as though uh, this guy Petroda actually, you know, created a telecom revolution, you know, between uh, 89 to 1999. Well, yeah, the, let's discuss some numbers about that. Yeah, so here, here so how do you measure, uh, uh, let, let, you know, one measurement is how teledensity, how many people actually started using, you know, phones. And by the way, the position of this guy Petroda was he thought it a luxury item 
for the average India to be, be able to use a cell phone. So he was living in the 1950s landline model when people actually wanted to bring in Ericsson and other companies to lay down the cellular model, he actually fought that. And during his so-called tenure between 89 to 1999, the teledensity, this is actual numbers, moved from 0.6% to 2.8%. That's it, okay? 0.6 to 2.8%. However, when you look at 1999, when Bajpai came and they, they uh, put in the NTP, new telecom policy, and the projection was, that they would achieve a teledensity of 15%. That was considered quite extraordinary. And what, yeah. Yeah. And, well, what, what they actually achieved, when you look at the numbers, I have my notes here, the actual numbers that got achieved, you know, uh, when you actually look at what actually took place, was far greater than you know, the, the, the 2000, uh, the 15%, it was close to 70%, right? 700 million people by 2012 got cell phones. So Petroda was living in the dark ages, thinking about putting in physical lines, while the, the rest of the world was moving to cellular. And what Bajpai did was he actually uh, enabled BSNL to become private. And what that did was he, he basically recognized that having this institution be part of policymaking would really not really support a real growth in the Indian telecom sector. So the guy was very visionary in that sense, or whoever was advising him. And that's where you see the explosive growth in Indian telecom. If we had followed what this guy Petroda had said, when I say we, the Indian people, right, we would still be back in landlines and, you know, and some old model. So what you have is you have the manufacturing of a lie, books being written, right, that he actually invented or supported in, in Indian telecommunications revolution. It's a complete bogus thing. If anything, it's, a, it's revisionist history. It's fake history. And you have Rahul Gandhi, who's allied with him to now probably project to the Indian masses, oh, I have this great leader who's going to help technology-wise. Well, what he was trying to do would actually say, let's go back to, you know, using the steam engine. That's what the equivalent is, you know, not to using, you know, advanced technology. So the guy is a complete fraud, and uh, just like Rahul Gandhi is, and it's time that we as the, the people within India recognize that there's a much bigger opportunity. Modi's election, in my view, in contrast to this, was probably the first time we truly had, in some ways, a revolution take place in India. And I say this, streaming. I, I think you've, you've shared with people, you know, my work with inventing email, you know, my work with science, but I've always been a, a lover of political history. You know, when I came to MIT in 1981, the person I studied with was Noam Chomsky. I was very interested in understanding the caste system. You know, I spent, MIT still has, in those days, they had a system called undergraduate research opportunities where you got to work with a professor. And what I did was I went back all the way into ancient Indian history, and you find something fascinating. By the 8th century, the, the movement of the Bhakti movement, which was a very profound movement, like the Protestant Reformation movement, was questioning if there's equality in heaven, why isn't there equality on earth? And that movement of, of the Sankaracharya movement between 8th century to 15th century was the beginnings of the breakdown of what you would call the caste system. So by the 15th century, 16th century, you had the rise, you had a very powerful dynamic going on in India. You had the rise of the merchant class, you had the rise of artisans, the rise of entrepreneurs. And that's why, if you look at the Portuguese, the French, the British, 
everyone came to trade with this very vibrant emerging merchant merchant class in India. And that trading partnership probably went, went along for around 50, 100 years. And that would have really projected India towards what you would call, uh, you know, early capitalism, right? Mm-hmm. In a very revolutionary way. Right. The monarchies were dying, right? These monarchs were essentially sort of like the monarchs of Europe, right? Very decadent people. They were useless people. They were dying off. What happened was what the British did, uh, what my research showed was in 1757 with the Battle of Plassey, they saw the, the new emerging rising merchant class of India as actually competition to them. So instead of wanting to collaborate with them and support their growth, they actually took Indian history backward. They went and collaborated with the, with the failing monarchs, with the old monarch dynasty, and they elevated the monarchs and they recodified. Essentially what they did was they used Victorian, instead of imposing British law on India, they actually imposed pre-8th century draconian caste law. And a lot of Indians don't know this, that the British actually reinstantiated a very draconian caste system, quote-unquote caste system back in India. And so what you see is that as a part of that, they created the Indian civil service. So um, by 1947, in fact, years before that, if you actually look at the documents, the British actually wanted to leave India. It's almost like Procter & Gamble coming into Africa, creating their local subsidiary then they realize it's too inefficient for them to run it. Uh, why not have the locals run it? In fact, they could probably be better slave masters. So um, that's why the Indian documents is not called the Declaration of Indian Independence, right? It's called the transfer of power. Right, right. So you, it's a very interesting word. People don't discuss it. It's called the transfer of power. So you have Mountbatten transferring power to his good friend and, his, and Nehru, who is having very cordial relationships with Mountbatten's wife which is also well-known and well-written about. Very platonic, I'm told. What's that? Very platonic, I'm told. Yeah, maybe. We don't know. (laughs) Uh, But you have transfer of power from, so white men with crowns leave and brown men with white hats take over. So so what we really had in India, and you can look at it, whether people want to argue with it or not, Nehru to Gandhi to Gandhi and now to another, and then to Gandhi again, right? Sonia Gandhi. Right. and uh, now to this other idiot, okay, Rahul. So you have a dynasty rule, and in the middle of that, you have a very profound thing called Narendra Modi runs, right? He, he right. does not come from that dynasty. He comes from a very different origin, and he wins. But I think he won in a landslide, right? Yes, yes. And that, to me, in many ways, was a revolutionary, it was a, nas- it was a, a nationalism that India really wanted. You see, my view, Sri, that you have to have nationalism before you can talk about globalism or internationalism. People have to have some sense of national identity. And, you know, in the United States, Sri, I don't know if you've experienced it, but if you're walking down a mall you know, or outside and you see another Indian, they always look the other way. I don't know if you've seen this. Yes, yes, I have. Although in, um, in the Bay Area, there are so many of us, it is hard to do that. But yes, I have. No, but, and I think it's this deep internal... I have a theory on this. It's a bigger psychological thing. But I think deep within every Indian, there is a recognition that they never stood up for themselves. Okay? And the Gandhian model of letting people beat the hell out of you is not human. The Gandhi, in my view, was parachuted in. There was an emerging nationalist movement within India, a progressive nationalist movement, which wanted to violently kick, kick out the British in a revolutionary way. 
And Gandhi was imposed to quiet down the Indian masses so they could have this nice, peace, quote unquote, peaceful transfer of power. So for 70 years until Modi's coming or longer, you essentially had really no nationalism in India. And I think Modi's winning um, uh, was really a reflection of, I think, the broad set of Indian people wanting nationalism, wanting to have some pride in, the, in, in being an Indian. What does India, India mean? And surely the Congress of Indira Gandhi and Nehru doesn't want that, right? Their thing was always Anglophile, right? A deep set of corruption. I mean, I'd probably give the exception to someone like Kamaraj, you know, in South India. Um, Kamaraj, if any, anything, uh, you know, uh, helped the Congress party with their image. Yes, but yes. What fact, I, he, he committed the cardinal sin of supporting uh, Indira Gandhi's candidacy for prime yeah. when there was a more better uh, qualified candidate just because of uh, jealousy. Go ahead, please. Yeah, I mean, the reason I know this is even though I've been in the United States is I grew up with Indian politics because when my dad came back from Burma as a young kid, he actually took time off and he worked with comrades going door to door you know, doing grassroots to help electrify Indian villages. So I, I come from my father who did a lot of public service, always very much into, you know, giving back. So there were a set of people at that time who were probably really good nationalists, but they were wiped aside by this dynastic rule. So in my view, just on principle, I think it's a good, great opportunity to give another landslide victory to Modi to completely show, to reflect the fact that this old dynastic model Foolish people like Rahul Gandhi, absolutely corrupt people like him, this whole Petroda nonsense that you've shared. And it's in some ways, it's a rebuke to this whole fake history of India, people thinking they could BS the Indian public. And that's what uh, Petroda represents, is a complete BSer. <laughs> now, um, you have, after you came back to the United States from the CSIR experience, did you get a chance to uh, meet uh, Narendra Modi, the prime minister? I did, yeah. So many years later, uh, I, I think Modi was uh, about to become. He had, I think he was. Um, uh, I met him back in Delhi, mm -hmm. um, and uh, in fact, there's a video out there. I had remember when I got back from India to here, I had come back to MIT and I was teaching a class about the integration of Eastern and Western medicine. It was a lecture series, very very popular lecture series, and then at that same time. When I got back, my dear mom passed away in 2012, 11 and 12. And here I had seen sort of the complete corruption of India, and I'd seen how the innovators of India were being suppressed. In 2011, my mom, before she died, gave me a suitcase free filled with all of the work that I'd done in 78. As people know, I, uh, I converted the old inner office mail system, inbox, outbox folders to the electronic version, wrote 50,000 lines of code. I called it email, a term never used before in the English language, and I got the first copyright. There's no question who invented email. We're not talking about simple text messaging. We're talking about the entire system, the email. But I never made any money off it because copyright law doesn't let you get royalties off design. But in 2012, nearly 35 years later, my mom had saved all this in a suitcase. The editor of Time Magazine wrote a beautiful article in Time Magazine called The Man Who Invented Email. Three years later, in February 16, 2012, I was honored by the Smithsonian where all of these materials were accepted. It should have been an occasion for a huge celebration. A Washington Post reporter wrote a great article uh, that night, and the day that article went in, it created this huge vitriol, three, 
hmm. about um, how could this guy claim he invented email was called a fraud and all sorts of horrible names. Yeah, I've seen some of those things. It is just absolutely despicable. Please continue. And one of the articles said this curry-stained Indian should be beaten and hanged. Let me repeat that. This curry-stained Indian should be beaten and hanged. And not one Indian stood up for me. Hmm. Okay? And that shows me, and people, Indians are even missing. What do you mean an Indian invented email, right? right. So the deep ethos is that Indians can just do coding, right? Right. Indians can be running CEOs of companies, Sundar Pichai at Google or Satya Nadal at Microsoft, right? Right. Which are good IAS officers. <laughs> Neo IAS, right? <laughs> but, and around that time, this is really important to understand, in 2014, a book comes out by the liberal, the white liberal, Walter Isaacson, who um, was with the Wall Street Journal, in the middle of this controversy, where I'm being hammered, mm. you know, all throughout, overnight, my four degrees don't mean anything. Mm. Every day, I'm trying to figure out what the hell's going on, trying to defend myself on the facts. I never wanted fame or fortune for this. Walter Isaacson writes a big, thick book called Innovators of the Digital Revolution. Okay? Now, you would think email was part of that. Email's not even mentioned, and every person in there is a white guy. Mm. Okay? And it's not only race issue. He talks about how all great innovations come out of the military industrial complex, right? Like you have to be in big industry. That so is sure the narrative was to try and say that all inventions in the United States came out of the military industrial complex. And not by white people. Let's be honest. We have to discuss race. You yes. see, the white liberal Democrats are the most racist. Hmm. In my election tree, everyday working class people voted for me the plumbers, the electricians where I grew up in New Jersey. The real racists in America are the white liberal elites who Malcolm X called the Northern Wolves. Hmm. You know, they're the educated people, right? Who so want to help the darkie, the black guy or the brown guy. And when I was at MIT, between 81 to 2007, I was on the front page for many things I'd done. But when I said email was done before I came from MIT, which I really did do, you see, many of these academics actually don't do a lot of things they say. They put more into promotion. So they get annoyed and they start calling me self-promoting when I actually did do all these things. And that's what the interesting thing is. When the real person, the real worker, the real scientist actually says, hey, I did do this, the vitriol you get back from the fake people, like a Petroda, mm -hmm. right? And by the way, none of the Silicon Valley Indian elites have come out and said, wait a minute, this guy invented email right? Because within them is a lack of identity. Because were I a Jewish guy, nothing against a lot of Jewish friends with blue eyes and blonde hair, I'd be on every stamp in the world, period. I wrote the code, called it email, have the copyright. So there's no controversy. So the reason I'm sharing that with you is when I looked at, when I opened up that suitcase, I had a lot of tears because I realized, wait a minute, I was able to invent email not at MIT, but in a small college with the loving support of a dedicated school teacher, right? My parents and a mentor. And I was given access to a com some computers. That's where email came from. It didn't come from MIT. It didn't come from big institutions. And here in India, you had these amazing scientists, 4,000 of them, who were equally doing great in inventions. And they were being suffocated by this folk of Indian, this, this, this you know, yoke of Indian feudalism. So 
you know, I, I hope that answers the point. But the thing is, I could see this contrast, but in America, I could still see that same sophisticated corruption, right? Yes, absolutely. It's, that is there. Yes. And that, that's why the slogan I came up with was innovation anytime, any place by anybody. That innovation can occur at MIT, but it can also occur in Newark, New Jersey. A 14-year-old boy invented TV in Franklin, Idaho. And there's probably some young kid, you know, who can do great math in India called Ramanujam, right? Yes. And that was in a small village. And the point is that the academic elites, people who do nice dyed goatees and do their hair back, these guys get the light of day and way too much publicity than everyday people, the boy who invented email, right? I'm not asking for awards from the Indian government, but I sure think there should be one for that 14-year-old kid. Yes, I, I completely and, agree and with the you. the fact that not one Indian stood up for me. Finally, Deepak Chopra heard about my story, and he allowed me to speak. It was a standing ovation of Hollywood stars, 20% uh, of them who were crying. Hmm. And the fact that the invention of email story, and on Wikipedia, people go and change my pages. Raytheon and BBN and have hired people to completely obfuscate the story. We're not talking about text messaging. Yes. We're talking about the invention of email. And now, if, you know, when people say Mozart wrote his symphonies, right? No one questions that. Or Bill Gates. Did Bill Gates actually do DOS? No, no one questions that. No, he didn't. Actually, he bought it from somebody else. Exactly. But no one questions Zuckerberg. Did he actually do his work? Even that is a... <laughs> right, but there's such pecuniary nitpicking yes. on what I did. Yes. And that shows the deep level of racism that mm -hmm. does exist. That's real racism. That's a racism we need to talk about. That's true. Not, not this bogus racism that the Democrats use. You know, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the fact, where is the image that a young Indian kid in a small village sees when he thinks about a great innovator? It doesn't exist. Right. They think about Thomas Alva Edison, right? Or Einstein. Where's the picture of this young 14-year-old kid who did invent email? That should be on every stamp in the world. And I'm not saying that's self-promoting for me. I'm talking directly about the facts and the truth. So when they attack me, Sri, be it in the U.S. medium or what occurred in India, it's not I, I'm fighting for me, Sri. It's about for the forgotten scientist who's sitting in India, for someone like um, – uh, who, who's a guy? There's so many people who have to leave India, right? Right. Because it, it, to, to win a Nobel Prize. Not, there's not one scientist who's won a Nobel Prize in India. That's right. Dr. Ayadur, one, one question. If someone were to go to Smithsonian, where would they look for your inventions? Well, Which it's a good thing. Because it, it was supposed to be in the, it's in the archives. It was, they were supposed to do an exhibit. You see, even the Smithsonian, after they took my stuff in, I gave it to them to do an exhibit. And they were supposed to put it on exhibit. When this controversy hit, they also got afraid. Hmm. So I may take it back, you know? I see, I see. But, but it's, it's all there. I mean, it's black and white. There's not even a gray area on the invention of email. So um, back to the context. I think we were going down this. Anyway, so Modi, actually, at this time, I'd written a book. Right. Because I was in the middle of writing a, another book. I had a very, very large book deal with Harper's mm -hmm. in the middle of this I had to stop that huge sacrifice and defend this and I wrote a book called email revolution and there's a I think there's a and I, I presented to Modi and Modi you'll see said thank you for your great contribution right mm -hmm. and uh, so what I saw in Modi was a really really honest man a humble mm -hmm. human being 
mm. who really was a true nationalist and who cares for this country. Far different than this moron, Rahul Gandhi. It's black and white. <laughs> so, I mean, I mean, it's completely ridiculous. Uh, you know, you're talking about someone who lives a very simple life. You can look at how Modi lives, right? You right. can look at what he's done. He's a nationalist, you know? And that's what India needs. It may need something different later on, but India has never had a strong nationalist leader who's put India first. That's right. Projected that. And every Indian needs that. Every Indian child needs that. They don't need a cokehead like Rahul Gandhi. <laughs> that is not what, you know, India is about. That's not why my, parents, my grandparents, you know, shed their blood and worked so hard for. Yes. So everyone can deliver a massive defeat to Rahul Gandhi. Forget parties, but as a repudiation of what he represents and what Modi represents. Period. It's, there's no choice here. And it's really disgusting that someone like Kamal Hassan is sucking up to Rahul Gandhi, you know? <laughs> I've met with Kamal many, many times. Mm. He talks a good game, but he's your typical, quote-unquote, left liberal. Say yeah. one thing, but do something else. Right. right. You know, he, he supported the Harvard-Tamil scam because he yeah. thinks Harvard is such a great institution. You know, if Kamal, if you're listening, you're completely stupid, okay? You're part of the celebrity elite, and you do not walk the walk. And it's really horrible that you're sitting with Rahul Gandhi and you supported the transfer of $6 million of hard-earned people's funds to an institution in the United States when that money should have gone to an institution in India to support the Tamil language. Absolutely right. Absolutely yeah, right. complete sellouts. I'm Dr. sure. Mahatma Gandhi, I'm sorry to say, he, he is not... He is not, you know, the father of India. You know, we're probably all a bunch of bastards if that's the case. <laughs> well, <laughs> the, the, true, the true fighters of India were forgotten. Mahatma mm -hmm. Gandhi was not fighting for poor Hindus' rights in, in, in uh, South Africa. He was fighting for the rights of a few set of very elite Hindu traders in the Transvaal region, and he failed at that. So he did a great thing, you know, changing his suits and putting on the white stuff. Great, great marketing. But I'm sorry, he didn't help the Indian people. You know, Subhash Chandra Bose could have helped India, okay? In the fact, there is an interesting conversation that took place between the Chief Justice of the uh, Calcutta Court, 1953 or 54, sometime after Clement Attlee had, uh, you know, stepped out of prime ministership. He had come visiting to India. He gave a lecture. And then after that, a conversation took place between the Chief Justice and Attlee, and uh, the, the Chief Justice was told by Attlee that um, the British left India not because of Gandhi, but because of the threat that the INA, the Indian uh, National Army that uh, Subhash Chandra Bose had founded. Because, you know, uh, one of the things that is not talked about much is the naval mutiny that took place in 1946 in various dockyards of India. I mean, that's what really made the British scared, saying that now the Navy is beginning to ask a lot of questions. Oh, yeah. See, that's why this is a typical way those in power work. This ha by the way, this happened in Africa, too, with the African National Congress. Mm. So you have the establishment. This is a very, it's a great lesson here. You typically have the establishment, the British, and their Anglophiles. You have the actual revolutionary fighters, people like you're saying, people are mutinying, fighting. And then the establishment creates a very powerful buffer called the not-so-obvious establishment. Right. The 
OE. It's a new term, okay? Not so obvious establishment, okay? Gandhi, Nehru, who they project to the masses as their savior. And those people are actually puppets of the establishment. And they prolong the suffering of people in the United States. The Democratic Party creates this left-wing element, and there's the actual deep state establishment. This is a dynamic that was created. And, what it, and, and that's why it's really, in Russia, the same thing occurred. You had the czar, you had the revolutionaries rising up, and you had the Mensheviks. The Mensheviks were, well, we don't really need to overthrow the czar. We could work with him, blah, 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 right? So there is always the not-so-obvious establishment is used to curtail. It's almost like there's cancer instead of dealing with it. The not-so-obvious establishment lets it fester for 70, 80, 90 years. And yeah, I, there was a similar experiment played out in India, too. There was the rise of this person called Arvind K. Jriwal, and he was projected by the Congress. Is it, in fact, that he was Congress's B team became evident to some right away, but it took some years before it became obvious. Oh, yeah. Same, same thing that played out. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and so, the, 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 so the modern thing that they're, you know, so the not-so-obvious establishment is always created, and they do it in very clever ways. One of the most important things, for you were asking what should people do, is they should understand the dynamics of the establishment creates these people who write beautiful poetry, right? They write beautiful articles. They, in fact, win Pulitzer Prizes, talking about how they want to help the masses. And then you actually look at what their actions are. Their actions are always to suck people back into the establishment in very clever ways. And that's, but they'll, they'll speak a lot about saving the whale, saving this, etc. But it's never about ever addressing the fundamental issues. In India, it's infrastructure. It's deep infrastructure. It's nationalism is necessary. Every Indian needs to feel that they are part of a country. India's never had that. Telling people that it was okay to get their asses whooped is unhuman. India had a history of always fighting, right? Yes. They had physically fighting and protecting themselves. Yes. For mobile rule, etc. And they had to bring in a guy like Gandhi who preached a ridiculous philosophy, complete <laughs> nonsense. The, the whole thing of nonviolence being brutally attacked is against every human instinct to do that. But that nonsense was imposed on us. And in fact, you talk about mutinies, when, when a C, one of the sepoy mutinies took place and the British hung the soldiers on the telephone poles or the poles, they asked Gandhi what he thought. And this is in his memoirs. He said, I believe the punishment was just if they disobeyed authority. Okay? Hmm. So you have a complete manufacturing of a leader. So India's never had its own leader. And I think Modi is the first guy on a national stage who's at least a leader that came by the people for the people. That's not a bad thing. You know, I'm not saying anyone's perfect, but it's a good opportunity to completely see a complete loss to Congress uh, to send a message that there's a new India coming and it's being made of people who believe in nationalism, that nationalism is good. Nationalism, nationalism is good. And those are the thoughts that we would like the viewer to take away because these elections are very important. Perhaps they are more important than the 2014. Well, well, yeah, and, and, and you look at the events between Pakistan, right? Right. Here, here's the important thing. Pakistan is a center of Islamic terrorism, period. Yes. Okay? It headquarters people on the, India surrounded by two sides. On the west, you have Saudi Arabia, which funds them. And then on the east, you have China. Now you tell me how a country which has about the same people as China, right? has one-fifth of the GDP. Doesn't make any sense, right? 
In right. China is 11 trillion and it's, and it's eyeing the United States. We're still at what, two or three trillion? That's right. Two point and, six. Yeah. Everyone speaks English in India. Yes. We powerhouse software engineering. Yes. There's a deliberate effort to keep India down. Yes. During the George Bush administration, there was a policy to make sure India could get civilian nuclear fuel. Mm -hmm. Okay? Uh, Markey, Ed Markey, who's the guy that I'm going to be running against, mm -hmm. he actually rallied people in, in the house to support non-proliferation so India could not get civilian fuel. Mm -hmm. Now, that would make a difference in India's ability because the spent fuel could be used for weapons, right? Right. And India doesn't even have enough really good conventional weapons. We rely on Russia. Russia is mm -hmm. a great country, but they're right. essentially becoming a big oil depot. And right. they're also pushed over to China. Right. So my theory is that India's, America's best ally is India. Two democracies. Just think about it. Why doesn't India and China, why doesn't India and the U.S. be like this? Yes. And that, that's, and that has been deliberately done by an old deep state in the, the old deep state establishment of America and the deep state Congress establishment of the United States, of, of India. Both of these people have actively suppressed India. Actively. Because there's no reason a country with 1.2 billion people all speak English, who are amazing mathematicians, amazing scholars, are at one-fifth of China's GDP. Um, I think to, for that to change, for India to get prosperous, I think the need of the hour is a government that is led by uh, Narendra Modi, and if not him, at least by the BJP party, because they have more the sense of nationalism. I think, um, Dr. Ayadre, we have covered a lot of topics here, and I, yeah. I, yeah. I hope that you'll find time to talk with us, because I'd like to kind of continue this talk, because it is important to find out who you are. And I, I mean, I'll just leave the viewers with one small thought. Uh, Rahul Gandhi is also contesting from a uh, a constituency which has a sizable amount of minorities and he's hoping to ride that minority vote into the parliament. He's not even sure he's going to win an Amity. So he is now contesting from a Kerala constituency, Vayanad, where the minorities uh, form close to 50%. And he's hoping that they'll all come show up to vote and they'll vote him. There's no other justification for this person to become uh, a member of parliament. He's not going to, I mean, the, the voters of Vayanad should think, what has he done for the constituency that he was representing all this time? Zilch, zero, nothing. Thank you very much, Dr. Ayadre. Sure. Thank you, Sri. Great being here. Thank you.